0: Hello and welcome to The Week That Really Was with John McGurk and Sarah Ryan for this week of Valentine's Day, ending the 16th of February, 2024. Sarah, I really don't know if I should be starting the podcast because I I, I think I'm out of date. Uh, Maria Walsh announced this week that men like me in sort of our 40s and so are male, pale and stale and should make way for I think people like you. So um, maybe moving forward, you can start the conversation rather than me.
1: Well, that's nice of her, isn't it? I forgot she existed. So that shows um, how instrumental she's been. She obviously needed the publicity. Um, but I think that the comments about men being pale and stale and all that is actually the thing that's pale and stale and overdone. I mean, this thing of like, you know, put, you know, men are useless and men, it, 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 I think we'll look back on this period. I've said it loads of times on the podcast. You know, Maria Walsh is not the one going out on up on, on a on a, a pole to restore electricity when there's a storm she's not the one going out um, into the high seas to fish for things she's not laying cement or tar on the roads etc etc so it's very convenient for her to talk about you know where she does and doesn't want men uh, to be visible to her but um frankly she's just um another example of um if the roads were reversed somebody who'd fit in very well in you know kind of 1950s catholic ireland when it came to women that she wants people of the opposite gender to not uh to be seen and not heard and um yeah. i think it's bullshit and i think it's clear you know a, a desperate attempt to get some publicity for herself a few months out from local from the european elections uh for what for whatever reason that might be and um i think it's it's offensive it is offensive if it was if it was if a man stood up as an MEP, and said there were too many women in anything or anywhere like that, there would be calls for resignations, but she's hip and cool, and so she can say things like that.
0: Well, I'll give you my opinion on her in a second, but just to say to the listeners, um, we're obviously not going to get a full hour out of Maria Walsh, because she's not that interesting. We're also going to talk in a little while about Michael McDowell and Roderick O'Gorman and the ongoing rise about the referendum. We're going to talk about the cost of the National Children's Hospital, and we're going to talk about Simon Harris wanting to bring people home. But Back to this issue of Marie Walsh. I mean, do you know what? I, I heard it almost didn't register with me, Sarah, because, it, as you say, it's so boring, it's so common. But like, more than anything else, I just think you've got some nerve. You got elected to the European Parliament in 2019, which was the last time we had European election. You tootled off to Brussels for five years. Nobody heard sight nor light of you since. Yeah. You you did everything. You did lived the life. You... you had all the perks of being an MEP. Now you've flit back to Ireland and your first contribution to Irish politics since you got elected this is to slag off other candidates for being men. And I yeah. mean, is this, supposed, is this supposed to impress me? Am I supposed to vote for you because you're a woman? I, 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 it's, do you know we talked, I think, on this podcast a couple of weeks ago about the increasing polarisation between young men and women and we talked about that whole thing about you know how women yeah, are going yeah, to the left yeah. and men are going to the left. This is a perfect example of why. I don't want to be represented by that. Like, I, I actually have no objection. I mean, I, I have no objection to be represented by people I disagree with. For for example, um, Deirdre Clune is retiring for Finnegale in Ireland South, um, The of the Cork-Barry family. She's been an MEP, I think, for about 10, 15 years. And I wouldn't agree with her on much, but I think she's been a, a fine, respectable, decent MEP, um, yeah. who has never given me any cause to be offended by anything she's done I might have disagreed with her votes but this is just no do you know what, that would drop her Maria Walsh from me from I don't vote in her constituency but I did it would drop her from like a four or five of my preference right down at the very bottom because yeah. just like go away
1: but, you but do you're do
0: something first
1: but you don't want to be associated you don't want to be represented but I'm a woman and neither do I I mean, like you're absolutely right that there's people. And and, and this is, in my experience, um, much more a, a characteristic of people who are, you know, I would call myself center right. But, you know, we're we're called far right by everybody else, if you know what I mean. And mm. um, it's, it's it tends to be more of a characteristic of, of us in my experience than than the rest of them, which is that like I'm able to respect and talk to be friends with and have time for people that I don't agree with. It's nothing to do with that it's 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 a, it's a to, to do with the behavior and it's funny because lots of things are starting to come full circle in the last couple of years and one of them is that i used to hate the um some of these kind of hip cool expressions like check your privilege but check her privilege to to feel the confidence and the you know to not have fear any kind of repercussions for standing up like that and utterly alienating her colleagues but also we 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 would expect a huge percentage of people who actually gave her their first preference vote. Mm. Like it, it, it's the immense privilege of feeling protected enough by your by your standing in this current woke hip society that you can say something like that. If Maddie McGrath stood up and and said an equivalent about the female members of the, of the Parliament, he'd be probably stoned to death in the nearby side street to Leinster House. Mm. So. I think it's garbage. I think it's a desperate attempt to get publicity. I think it's offensive. I think it's not just offensive to men. I think it's offensive to 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 women because I don't want to be associated with that kind of thinking. I'm uh, like I don't want my sons to grow up in a world where people like that. You know, it's it, it's it, like uh, my my sons are are male. Are they supposed to just cower in the sidelines because of people like her? I mean.
0: The, the, the other thing is, you say about it being check your privilege and, and boring now. I mean, just to put this in context, in 2020, you probably don't remember this, but in 2020, in August of 2020, um, during the pandemic, uh, Lynn Boylan, who um, was a Sinn Féin candidate for something or other at the time, she had a go at the um, Fine Gael front bench being full of, quote, middle class white men. Uh, and said that they wouldn't have an understanding of the perspective of a traveller, somebody who's uneducated, somebody from the Roma community. The law doesn't treat middle-class white men the same. And Sarah, I don't know if you remember the outrage that came from Leo Varadkar at that, that. He said, he said, he actually sent a tweet about it. He said, if you're white male or even worse middle-class, Sinn Fein doesn't want you. So much for quote Ireland and equals. And then um, Barry Ward, who's a Fine Gael senator. He piled in as well, and he said uh, he said he was disappointed by that kind of attitude um, about middle class white men. Absolutely nothing to say when it's their own party colleague trotting out the same tired, boring old claptrap. Nothing to say. The hypocrisy of it is is stinking. Um, and you know, anyway, I, I don't think it's going to do any really good because it's a bad constituency, Ireland Northwest, to be complaining about white middle class men. There's a lot of them in it. Well, I mean, but like
1: I said, you know. Uh, and I, I say it about Leo. Said about Hall, You know, when you're the T-shirt, when you're the Tarnisher, when you're the MEP or the MEP representing uh, everyone, not just the people you like and agree with. So if she's not even prepared to represent, and she might as well go home. Do you not
0: think this is uh, goes to the to the leadership issue though in the government? Because I guarantee you that if 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 somebody had said something like that when John Bruton, God rest him, or Charlie Hoey, God rest him, were leading their respective parties they would have been slapped down and slapped down publicly. I mean, I, wh- wh- where was Varadkar saying, look, Maria Walsh's comments are out of line, they don't represent the views of the Fine Gael party and she should withdraw them. Like, call your call your MEP, call your candidate back into line. Show the voters something that actually this doesn't represent you because your silence says, this is how you all feel. You tolerate this sort of stuff. I mean, so it's not just her that is damaged by this. It's the entire Fine Gael brand because why, you know, if this is the kind of attitude that's tolerated towards people like me by that party, why should I ever vote for it? And I know this will surprise listeners, but I've, I've never been hugely hostilely disposed towards Finnegale. i voted for them in the past. They would probably get a middle-ranking, decent, not a number one or a two, but a, a decent preference of me in an election. But not anymore. This is just offence.
1: I love the way you kind of Place you know you like in the nicest way you kind of value your vote so much that you place kind of you know some significant kind of considerable weight behind like a fourth preference or a fifth preference.
0: I I do because well you know I tend to vote for no hopers. so sometimes a number four for me is as good as number it's one.
1: Pretty good, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. So, uh, so 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 but 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 I also do think that is important and, and I mean I can tell you from having been a candidate and you know this as well. A lot of times when people tell you on the doorsteps they'll give you a vote, they mean you're getting a number seven.
1: Oh, for sure. But I also think that if you've been a candidate or you've been involved in politics and you've been in enough counts, you've seen people be elected on a couple of sixes instead of... really, really hate someone. I always say to people, you leave it blank. You don't give them anything.
0: And as as our mutual friend Jason O'Mahony always says, and this is relevant coming up to the election, if you... Really, really want to keep somebody out. You don't want to see them getting elected. Then you vote for literally everybody else on the ballot paper. Yeah, you can use your vote that way because because then your preference is always available to whoever's opposing. But anyway, that yeah. we might do something about how to use your vote uh closer to polling day. There's no need to do it for the referendum because that's easy. That's just yes or no. Um, but for the European local elections, we might do something about
1: how to yeah, use but. Your uh- vote. On this, I would say I think that what you're seeing there, you're absolutely right. And it's not just a Fianna Gale thing, it would have been a Fianna Fall thing as well, that you know, people who spoke out would be publicly slapped down or whatever. And I I think that something is happening in 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 both parties, which you have a, a type of lame duck leader, in that they don't have the they don't have the the political, what's the word? They don't have the political um clout almost within their own parties to use up um to 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 do that. They don't have the clout to 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 reprimand people publicly. Um they don't have the clout to um you know get people to say or do or not say or do things anymore. And mm-hmm. certainly in the Fall's case, you know, Mihal is like the 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 party is effectively um uh, a way in which he's, uh, you know, advancing his own personal ambitions. So, you know, he, he's not going to rock the boat by some random MEP saying, I, I know she's Fine Gael, but you, you get my point. And I don't think Leo is terribly dissimilar. I mean, Fine Gael have, and and by the way, as well, like in a week where like Leo's having his ninth, is it TD saying that he's not running? Like Leo has bigger problems than Maria.
0: He does. Um, so he's, they're, they're that... also going to select Josefa Madigan, apparently, as their candidate in Dublin. So he's got bigger problems again.
1: Why do you think that's a problem?
0: I'm not a Josefa Madigan. I'm not convinced by her. You know, if she was a football player and Manchester United signed her, I wouldn't be expecting much. Put it that mm-hmm. way. Um, I mean, this is somebody who uh, Leo Varadkar himself unceremoniously demoted from the Cabinet. And has been in no rush to take back, so she's not good enough to sit at the cabinet table, but she's good enough to represent the country in Europe. I'm not convinced.
1: Well, um, I think that the, I think that because I was actually looking at it uh, just the other day, out of interest, and I think like the last European elections in Dublin, if you look like the quota was about seventy two thousand, the fourth seat was taken by Barry Andrews without having reached the quota at about fifty one. Kieran Cuff took the first seat for Green Party, and then in the middle was Francis Fitzgerald and Claire Daly. I think that election is wide open. I, I, I wouldn't be confident. Now, obviously, France Fitzgerald isn't herself running, but I wouldn't be confident for any of them. Knowing. If I was any of those people going in, I wouldn't be very confident.
0: No. Like
1: that thing is wide open. So, I mean, like we again, we could talk about that again, close to the time. But I think that Fine Gael have a number of problems within the party, problems with um le- the leadership, problems with people not running, and, um on the one hand, you know, this is a kind of a small fry problem that is MEP is coming out and saying this kind of stuff, but on the other hand, it goes to the heart of what's the problem there. And the problem there is being offensive to your to your voters um by thinking by chasing some kind of woke ideology that you think people care about and not having the not having the leadership authority to to smack it back down. Yeah. and with something.
0: The last thing I'll say on this before we move on is that, of course, the standard Fine Gael voter in this country is a middle-class white man. Yeah, That's their base. That's who yeah. votes for them. That's what the party has become. That apparently middle-class white men are personas non grata. Anyway, to um, somebody else who's a persona non grata is, uh, uh, well, as far as Michael McDowell is concerned, Radical Gorman and the entire cabinet in relation to the referendum. He has been, I have never, I've rarely seen Michael McDowell as angry as he is this week. I mean, he he's basically openly calling the government liars uh, in their yes campaign in an interview he did with Ben Scallon on Grip. But also, also elsewhere on social media, he's been quite he, he's quite worked up. Um, and I, I think it's it's really significant because because whatever else you might say, Sarah, about Michael McDowell, he's not what you'd call a radical. He's no. a member of the. Irish political establishment in very good standing. He's a former Minister of for Justice. He's a former Attorney General. He's a colonist for the Irish Times. He's a very senior lawyer. If somebody like that is is really close to losing their temper with the government over their referendum campaign, I think that's that's quite significant. And it's not surprising because they've been lying through their teeth um, openly and blatantly. I'll come to that in a second. But first of all, what do you think of the McDowell situation?
1: I think that, like for the likes of uh, people like you and me, it's really, really comforting to know that he's there because, and I would have been in favor of at one point in favor of, and I've changed my mind of abolishing the Shannon and like he just proves that that would have been a terrible mistake. Because he's doing exactly what he's paid to do, which is calling out the government, and he's getting more and more angry, and he's doing a great job. I mean, I think that, like you said there, like he's an established kind of long-standing politician. He's been in and out. Um, you know, when my dad was a TD; he was there. He, you know, he kind of topped the poll, won an election, and then lost the seat the next. You know, but he's got a lot of experience. He's a really good legal mind. And for him to be getting so, like, hot head up about this kind of thing says a couple of things. It says that the government are, you know, in trouble and not, um, not playing this referendum the way they should. But it also shows, and I'm, I think it's starting to demonstrate that Roderick O'Gorman is immensely politically naive. Not that we didn't know that already, but that he's coming up against a kind of a a, hev- a political heavyweight, and it's showing him up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it all goes to bad news for the referendum um, I was pleased to see that, he, that Michael McDool is saying in group that he thinks it'll be defeated, both of them um, I don't know, I haven't met anybody who's voting yes, but I I just don't know um, but overall I, I, I think that, I think Roger Gorman is, is you know how do I say this very lightweight politically and I think that's showing more and more Well, that's the kindest way I could put that
0: I'd agree with you on that I mean but I, I think the more significant thing actually is is to hell with radical government in one sense because what really angry. <laughs> that be
1: the title of the podcast to hell with radical
0: Rod- <laughs> we, we can try no, uh, no. we can see yeah. let's see if I can get that through the censors yeah um, yeah For me, the significance of this week is this is when the week when the government abandoned all pretense of telling the truth about the referendum. Mm. We had three verifiable lies from the government in relation to what was happening with these referendums. Number one, Leo Varadkar came out and he said um, that concerns about immigration in relation to the family referendum were a, a, quote, red herring. Now, that is flatly false, it is flatly false because not only did his own TD, Neil Richmond, go on television last, before, before he Christmas. He started it. He yeah. started it. He's the one who said this will make, um this will increase the amount of immigration by making family reunification easier. In other words, if you come here from um some other country, uh, you can go to the courts and they will say you don't have to be married to somebody to bring them here as part of your family. If you've got a durable relationship, you might be able to bring more people over. So that's the first instance. That, that is not only Neil Richmond's view and Michael McDowell's view, but it's also something that the cabinet were told, according to the Irish Independent, at a cabinet meeting in December by their own officials. So, unless the Irish Independent got that wrong and the government didn't correct them, the government didn't say, oh no, we weren't told that, the government let that report stand, then that is a blatant lie. Say it's a red herring, if it's serious enough to raise at the cabinet table, it is not a red herring. And the Taoiseach blatantly lied about that. Then you had Catherine Martin, the Minister for Communications, reiterating the lie that the Constitution says that a woman's place is in the home. This is something that her own Electoral Commission, which is headed by Supreme Court judge Mary Baker, says is absolutely untrue, that the courts have never interpreted the Constitution to mean that a woman's place is in the home. And the third lie is Leo Varadkar said that by voting for the carers' amendment, we would put additional legal obligations on the government, to protect carers. That is a complete lie because the wording of the referendum doesn't say the government shall protect carers. It says the government shall strive to protect carers. In other words, it shall try, yea, though it would be really difficult, which is not a legal obligation to actually do anything because once you go into a court and say, well, well we tried worked very hard, you've satisfied the Constitution. So, I mean, there's three lies in a matter of two days from from two of them from the Taoiseach, one of them from the Minister of Communications. And I mean, I am, and these are the same people who will turn around and lecture the rest of us about misinformation and disinformation. It is, it it really boils my blood watching it. I, it, I very rarely want to shout at politicians, but the shamelessness of this is something, something else. So I, I completely relate to McDowell's anger, but I've got plenty of it on my own I have to say on this topic. And by the way, just to finish my rant, um, the clowns that purport pur- pur- to call themselves journalists in this country, in the rest of the media outlets who will turn around and, and, and echo every government concern about the rise of misinformation and fake news and disinformation. When presented with the opportunity to actually challenge it when it's coming from the government, sit stum and say nothing. I mean, yeah. to, to hell, not only with the radical government, but to hell with the whole lot. No, as as that's I'm a
1: concerned. better title. To hell with a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, so I, I suppose I have a question, really. You know the way, like, do you think that... Well, you know, you've been involved in different campaigns, and like, I, you know, neither of us, I don't think, have ever worked in like the Taoiseach's office or whatever. But like, I can imagine that there's an element of chaos to it, especially if they're kind of panicking a bit about the referendum. Do you think that he reads his briefing notes and goes out and makes a mistake in saying that, you know, or do you think he knows that he's not telling the truth? He knows he's not telling the truth. Absolutely. So we're at that's the level, that's it, the level we're at now.
0: First of all, I I know he knows he's not telling the the truth, and we're talking about the shirt here, his statements. Because Mm -hmm. in both of them, we have clear evidence that he knew what the truth was. In in relation to the claim that the referendum will increase um, the legal obligations to protect carers, he knows that's not true because whatever else you might say about him, the man can read the English language. He signed off on the wording of the referendum. He knows it says that the government shall strive to, not that the government shall do. Um, He's the Taoiseach, he has enough basic legal knowledge to know what that means. And his government's lawyers who drafted the wording know bloody well why they put in the word strive and not the word shall. Um, So he absolutely knows, absolutely knows that what he's saying is untrue. And in fact, the wording is intended to ensure that it's untrue. And secondly, in relation to immigration, he is the Taoiseach and we have a report that the cabinet received a briefing from officials that this would impact immigration. And he's turning around and saying it's a, he- a red herring. So either he was sleeping during a cabinet meeting, in which case he should resign because he's a teacher, or he's lying deliberately. Uh, and my money is on the latter. So so I, I think he absolutely knows what he's doing. But he also thinks, he also knows that there are enough casual voters out there who don't follow this stuff, who aren't going to go and look up what was said last December, that he can get away with it. And he knows full well that our friends in the press corps, most of whom favour a yes vote, because it's the progressive thing to do, will sit there stum and not risk the chances of getting government advisory jobs after the election. Hmm. That's my bleak assessment of the situation.
1: But then I suppose I'll go further. Like, what, 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 what do you think the impact will be for the government if they get hammered in these two referendums?
0: Well, oh, next to nothing.
1: So why does he care? Like, would you not? Do you know what I mean? Why would he care enough to lie? I mean, I think, am, I, I think, am I being terribly naive here? But like, you yeah. know, if you're going to lie about something publicly, would you not lie about something that actually yeah. had consequence or significance? Like, why would you bother? Like, I, you cause, cause it I, think it's,
0: I think it's a tribal thing. One of the things I find very hard these days wearing sort of journalist hat is to set that tribalism aside. So I, I have been trying with Gript constantly to find um, people to interview or people to talk to who want to advocate for a yes vote. Now, very few of them want to talk to Gript which is making it difficult, but we're, we're trying because I, I even though my inclinations about how I, I'm going to vote in the referendum should be clear to any listener, we have an obligation to try and cover both sides. But I think when you're in politics, tribalism takes over. And I think he looks across the fence and he sees um, people like David Quinn and the Ionis Institute. He sees the the people like the Countess who disagree with him on sort of um, transgender policy. He sees... Um, the likes of Michael McDowell, who was, of course, the bane of Fine Gael when he was leader of the Press of democrats, And he says, this is tribal and I want to beat these people. I think that's that's what it's about. And I think that while, while losing the referendums won't do the government any harm, I think they probably feel with some accuracy that if they can get the referendums passed, then it'll be a crushing blow in terms of morale to sort of the growing wave of opposition to the political establishment growing in the country. It'll be a real... We're in charge, we can do this, screw the recipe moment. Do you not think?
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe yeah, maybe you're right. It's like a tribalism thing. I mean, I find you know, like you were involved in party politics, so as I. I mean, I find and, and there's you know, there's things I agree with and lots of things I agree with in Fiendfall and lots of things now that I don't. and um, most of the I you know, there's there's definitely tribalism, but there's people who just you know, are mature enough to say, OK, we agree on this and we don't agree on that or whatever. I'm just, I'm just kind of surprised. to. See, I think it's a kind of a pathetic thing to get tribal about. But you might be right because it's the only logical explanation for it. Like, you know, a win is a win, I suppose, for the government, but um, a loss isn't going to make that much difference. And you, you would imagine that his efforts would be better spent elsewhere. But
0: yeah, I suppose. Yeah, a loss has no real consequence for them at all, um, no. and a loss is actually. If I was in the government, I would think a loss. I was thinking strategically. A loss is better for me because a loss kind of. I always think back Honestly. to the two thousand and two two thousand and two abortion referendum. I don't know if you remember that, Bertie Ahern, in a nod to the to the pro-lifers who were a lot stronger than they are today at the time, proposed this referendum to basically ex-proof that. The, the constitution it would have removed suicide as the ground for abortion do you remember that yeah but it was one of those where the government did their bit they campaigned for it um the pro-life campaign and others um were delighted and tried to cam- and then the referendum was defeated and politically i think and I'm, I'm not talking about ethics morals anything else here politically i think that strengthened the government of the day because it essentially freed them from an obligation to a lobby group um, they were able to turn around and say uh, another good example is the way the the, 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 the PR referendum Tories held in England when they came into office with the Liberal Democrats. It let them say look, we, we tried your idea, it wasn't popular you go away now. I think a loss might be better for the government if I was thinking strategically because it would allow them to say to the likes of the National Women's Council who've had them by the short and for years, look we tried your stupid idea, it didn't work, go away and put your head in the sink.
1: Oh God, if only.
0: Uh, well, Yeah, uh, That's uh, that's that's me thinking strategically. I mean, I'm not sure governments see it like that. I think they might be afraid of it ticking off from Oral O'Connor.
1: What a terrifying prospect.
0: Indeed so. Anyway, we'll talk more about the referendums as we get closer. But one of the things we haven't really done, I got an email request during the week, was to you know, go through and explain in great detail what the referendums will do and what they'll mean. And if you are that person who sent that in that email, I don't really think that's Something you're going to get from me and Sarah because neither well Sarah's a lawyer, I'm not. Um, but you should go and watch the interview with Michael McDowell that's on grip He goes through it in some detail as to what the changes proposed are and what he thinks the consequences will be. We have tried to get somebody from the Yes side to respond to him. If we do, we'll put that video up. But um, I'm not optimistic because I'm not entirely sure if their position is strong enough to withstand questioning. Is my view.
1: But like that's also like a story in and of itself, isn't it? That they won't even. They won't even put someone forward. Surely you'd want your argument to be put on every possible, you know, platform you could get. But that's the point, isn't it? Only the people we like and agree with we want to talk to. Okay. Yeah, well,
0: it's going to come back and bite them in the ass eventually over time, I think.
1: Anyway, to uh,
0: lest it be said that we criticise the government all the time, um, Simon Harris wants to bring back a load of Irish builders. That's a good idea, isn't it?
1: Yeah, sure, why not?
0: I mean, it is a good idea. That's the first thing to say about it. It is a good idea. And, and I can't be hypocrite and say it's not because I, I've written several times that if you look at the housing crisis in Ireland, Sarah, the, 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 the issue there is not money. If the government could solve the housing crisis, the government could write a check for, say, four billion quid in the morning and solve the housing crisis. They would do it. They would absolutely do it. The problem is they can't because there aren't the builders to build the houses and the, the the in fact they're making the problem worse by trying to spend more money because they're at the moment all at the same time they're trying to sp- they're spending like 3 or 4 billion to rebuild mica houses in Donegal they're spending another couple of billion to try and come to my house and insulate it and get me to take in a put in an air pump instead of my oil burner, which isn't happening, but they're trying. And lots of people's houses they're they're insulating and upgrading like that. And then they're trying to build 30,000 new houses a year. The issue isn't money. The issue is that you've got three government departments bidding, bidding against each other for the services of builders and plumbers and by the way, the private sector then as well, trying to bid. I, I heard from somebody this this uh week who a couple of years ago had built um basically a poultry farm unit, um, for, for, for chickens. And at the time it had cost about 400 grand. And he thought about building a second one, like quoted 1.3 million. And that, <laughs> those are like four years apart. So that gives you a sense of the cost inflation in construction. Uh,
1: yeah, that's absurd.
0: That's reality. I, I, I know this person well, he wasn't fibbing to me that that's the, those are the figures he was quoted. Um, so so that gives you a sense of kind of like the and it's down to a shortage of labors a shortage of materials all the rest of it. So bringing back workers is actually more important than spending more money. So in fairness to Simon Harris it is actually a really good idea. It's just I'm not sure it's something that uh, he's given any thought to beyond this is a good idea vote for me.
1: Yeah, I mean look I think anybody who's like planning on ha- having anything done to their house or anything like that, like has been made aware of the escalating costs. And I know people who work in biz- in business in building across different areas and staffing, has seems to be a huge problem. So there's nothing wrong with this idea. I think it's just a little bit kind of mild or it's mildly irritating for people because it's the kind of thing that was being talked about quite a while ago by other people. And, you know, there's an element of Johnny Come Lately shows up to kind of say, oh, look at this wonderful idea, and it's a day late and a dollar short.
0: Yeah, plus, I mean, the other thing here is it, there's an assumption being made that the construction workers want to come back here, which mm. I think is a bit far-fetched. I'm sure there are some. I'm sure there are some. I'm not saying there's no construction out there worker who wouldn't like to come back to Ireland. But if you left after 2010, 2011, and you went to Australia, for example, yeah. And I actually know a couple of people, not personally, but I, uh, friends of my brothers, for example, who went to Australia around that time when there was unemployment. There are people with trades. Some of them are carpenters. Some of them are stonemasons and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, went out there, built a life, met a woman, got married, now very happily living there. Um, don't Some of them want to come home, but a lot of them don't. because so The standard of living is higher. The taxes are lower. The weather is better. They don't particularly want to come home in the first place. Then you've got guys who went to the Middle East and they're working in Saudi Arabia and paying absolutely no income tax,
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: with a constant supply of work. I mean, Saudi Arabia is th- talking about building about like, three new cities, cities over the next thirty years. Mm-hmm. So they have no, you know, they 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 can come home when they've earned all their money and they want to retire. Um, so I'm not sure it's as simple as oh, just put ads in the Australian papers and tell people they're wanted back home.
1: No, and it's multi, it's multifaceted. I mean, I'm, you know, 40 and some, two actually, and particularly of my best friend, female friends went to Australia for periods of time and came back right around the time of kind of, like, you know, there was kind of a juncture where they were like, right, they're both, they're both in couples and they're like, right, are we going to have our kids in Australia? Are we going to have our kids in Ireland? And both decided to come back because they're close to their families and they wanted to be around their families when they had kids and you know what you're and, and and both one in particular like you know struggled quite a bit with the kind of reintroduction of coming back to Ireland you know the cost of everything the quality of life you know they're all they're actually all homeowners now but like you know for people like two couples all with good jobs all kind of moving back in with parents for a prolonged period of time to save up for this or to get this you know to get mortgages like it wasn't easy and so the people who remain behind in Australia that are friends with are looking at that and kind of going well when you weigh it all up there's a lot more to it than just oh there'll definitely be a job there for me there's the cost of living, there's the ability to get onto the property market, there's the rental market, there's lots of elements to it. And it's not as attractive as we think. Yeah. And the other
0: thing is, I mean, and this is where I'm going to criticise Simon Harris, because he's had a good idea, but an awful lot of times, and Simon Harris is a great man for this, he'll have a good idea, and then he'll just do nothing with it. Like Because the point is having the idea and telling people to have the idea, and oh, I'll vote for Simon Harris, he said a nice thing.
1: What yeah, we have will call. I call I call for this and I, I call on this and I call you see loads of people doing it now, especially because it's local and European elections. I call on the government. You're in the government.
0: Yeah. I'm calling for stuff. I mean, That's just, me
1: shouting out in my house. I call on someone to make the dinner tonight. Well yeah. Well it's you. But like, it, you know, Yeah. The
0: Irish political system could be power you could power the earth with Irish politicians calling for things. <laughs> I mean it's basically the full time job of every county councillor. County councillors don't do anything, they call for other people to do things. That's their number one job. You know, there's a pothole in that road. I call on the county manager to Yeah. yeah it's, there's, uh, there's
1: a photo of me pointing at the pothole with a sad face on me.
0: Yes. Oh, that's that is a classic. There was actually one of those in the local paper in Tipperary last week. Somebody was literally standing there pointing at a pothole. <laughs> um <yeah. laughs> public representation. It's not hard <laughs> if you're yeah. willing to debase yourself. I mean, there are things we could do. Um, I wrote a piece this week in which I suggested, and I mean, I'm actually serious about this, and it's not, I'm not making an anti-Ukrainian point, but if I wanted to bring back builders and, and Irish people to Ireland to help our construction industry, I would offer them, in addition to whatever they might earn here, for a period of two years, the exact same supports that Ukrainians have got. Mm-hmm. That supplement of 250 quid a week or whatever it was, on top of what you're earning. um. To uh, and and perhaps state-funded temporary accommodation for, say, a period of three months, when you come back, if if you want. Like th- there should be should be some incentive because these are people we actually need in our economy. Now like, we are, I, I, by the way, I, I would say that as well. For uh, this is where people might fall out with me, but I would say that as well for for people in the building trade who aren't necessarily Irish. If if you have desired skills that we badly need come here and work we should support you to do that because you're helping our economy Um, at the moment we are paying lots of people to come here and giving them financial supports who aren't necessarily benefiting the country because we apparently think it's a kind and decent thing to do well just for once could we spend that money in a way that actually benefits the rest of society and helps solve the housing crisis I don't think that's a pretty controversial or out there idea. I'm sure there will be some people, because there always are, who would begrudge it and say, well, why aren't you doing the same for nurses and teachers? The short answer being that we don't have as urgent a need for nurses and teachers. So the government is perfectly entitled if it wants to.
1: Yeah, I mean, just... look, we, we can go we can go round and round in circles on that kind of thing. I hate that as well. When you're like, you know, we should, we should invest in X, but sure, there's this, this and this. Well, if we do that, we'll never do anything. We well, just that's started the circles pointing out other things. Then, well, like, no, like, investing heavily into one area isn't suggesting that everything else is perfect, but you just have to, like, pick something.
0: Well, it's my it's my biggest bugbear with Irish politicians is that they never actually focus on one thing and do it. Like, hmm. you, you know, you, you, politics ultimately... But by like
1: the way, that. John, but, 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 but we saw that there was an ability to do that during COVID.
0: Oh, yeah, when they had no choice, there was. Yeah. That
1: was actually the thing that boiled my tits the most about the whole ah. COVID thing. Which was <laughs> excuse if you'll excuse the expression. But like was oh, it turns out we are actually able to fast track and get things going and work things out when we need to. Why does it why do we only have to be able to do that then?
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, the the actual title of this podcast is going to be boil my tits. <laughs> but secondly, um the secondly, uh like you're correct. when they were forced to focus on one thing, they they had to do it. But, you know, we have this situation in the country where um, we've got any number of problems and the government can't focus on solving one of them. So there's this constant, oh, we'll we'll split up the pie 15 different ways instead of fixing one problem at a time. And you see this at budget time every year where there's like a little goodie for everybody. Instead of actually, you know, taking that money and saying, this year we are going to throw everything we can at health, and we are going to, over the next year, we are going to do what it takes to deliver um, 1,000 extra hospital beds. You know, whatever the resources it takes and see if you can do it. And if you can't, you can't. But at least you've tried. And I think people would respect a government that did that. But, yeah. you know, the, instead, it's just constantly kind of like, it's a fixing potholes country. That's what they do. They fix potholes in every public service rather yeah, than or actually you, reform or, or,
1: or you, Or you do exactly what you're saying. Like, you know... I actually just somebody told me this horrific story this week about a friend of theirs whose son died by suicide, and it was about you know he was a teenager and how long he'd struggled to try and get help, and you know just the waiting list and and the mental health services are just not there, and you know what what are you what are you supposed to? Do? It's not even like a pu- public private thing. There is nowhere to go, and um, mm. and so you know if the government said. You know, it's not it's not it's not that you're not going to do anything about anything else. But, you know, if they said this year we're going to run, we're going to invest heavily in mental health services. And part of that is going to be a recruitment drive across the world for psychiatrists and give them perks to move to Ireland for a three year period from other countries and try and start offering services to people who are desperate or whatever. But it's like, you know, five percent to every problem and never 85 percent to one is just leaves. Problems, they're gasping for breath all of the time.
0: Yeah, and, and politics is ultimately this is the thing that, that that I want to say. Like the only reason we have politicians, the only reason we have, the only reason we need them, is to make um, unpopular choices. If it was, if politics was just about making popular choices, there would be no need for it because we could. Sorry, John, I, dis-
1: I-, I disagree. We also need them to wish leaving third
0: students good luck on the day. Oh, we, do, we do, we do, we do. That's that's very very important, and to celebrate International Women's Day two other important roles to the politician. But I mean, aside from those two very important things, you know, if, if politics was just about making easy decisions, uh, we wouldn't need it because every decision would be universally agreed. Oh, we'll give more money to nurses, more money to guards, more money to teachers, set the minimum wage at 500 grand an hour and we'll all live happily ever after. The only reason mm-hmm. we have politics is because there's limited resources and, and multiple problems and it's up to them to decide which ones to fix. And Irish politicians have completely abrogated that duty. They don't do it. What they do is they try and fix, like, they try and stop every problem from getting too bad rather than fixing one. Like, i, I give you an example. Would and We're going to talk about the National Children's Hospital in a minute. But this extra, way. this extra 500 million that is going to the cost of the National Children's Hospital if I were running the country, I would scrap it. I would scrap it in the morning. I would Really? Say,
1: you would You would just go, that's the end of that then? I would say to help. Because I've, I've had this conversation, we'll get to it in a minute. Go on, go on, go
0: on. But I would put that money into, I would say, what I'm going to do instead is every child with scoliosis in the country is going to get treatment this year. If they're not getting it in Ireland, we're paying to send them to the United States or somewhere else and we're buying them the treatment they need because it is a mortal stain this country that we've got oh, kids so with deformed is. spines who can't get treated.
1: And
0: I think, I I think that would be more popular than what the government is doing.
1: And, it's, and, the, the scoliosis thing is the kind of thing I would expect to see in a video of a third world country.
0: It really is. It's the kind, you know, I, I don't know if they're on every channel, but I, I watch a lot of sky sports and there are these awful ads, um, which I think are on most channels, but they're kind of like, you know, kids with terrible eye diseases in Africa or or you know the, the donut they are asking for money for coalition for the blind or whatever it is. Um and, and when I see kids with scoliosis, I think I'm watching one of those ads. I think like I you know they, they should be on an ad being run in Mauritania or somewhere. Please send money to Ireland to help yeah. with these kids with scoliosis. Everything And also
1: and also so on very be- like on on imaginable suffering for the children, but all but also, I mean, I think anyone who's a parent would understand like, I don't think I can imagine a worse torture for me than watching my kid suffer every day because you know because I lived I happen to be unlucky enough to live in a country that hasn't bothered to take the finger out and sort this problem out once and for all. Those children were with scoliosis and waiting this were promised a few years ago.
0: Mm-hmm. And 2019. One, 2019, Simon Harris, who was then Minister for Health, said that there would be no child waiting more than, I think, three months for an operation by the end of
1: 2019. Yeah. And what uh, I saw um, a speech given by um, what's the senator's name? Um, Tom Clonan. Yeah, about how one child had become paralyzed as a result of the wait.
0: Yeah, and there's another child uh, and we, we've covered his case on Gript, who literally may die because the curvature in his spine is collapsing his lung um and, and the worst thing about about this is that scoliosis for those of you who, who don't know you may have come across it from, so it, it's not just a matter when it gets to this stage it becomes very hard to treat because all of the scoliosis treatments in the world sarah expect to be diagnosed early and treated early yeah with things like yeah. back braces and maybe some of them insert a rod in the spine yeah. to straighten it up and but so they expect
1: and so a on. level of growth after the fact to kind of yes yeah,
0: yeah. The, the, and when you let, get to this stage the treatment becomes a hundred times more painful and egregious and debilitating it is it is it, it but, is just a national it's a disgrace it, but that's no also
1: true way. John of, of of lots of mental health things like there's not there there's not you know for example anorexia and bulimia there, that's not a person who can wait you know, in perpetuity until somebody gets around to offering them a bed that somebody will die in the meantime lots of depression and mental health in young adolescents those people could die
0: yeah uh, 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 it's it's it, there are many problems we're picky we're i was pointing out scoliosis as one but it's not the only one but it just strikes me that there is nobody in politics with the with the with the, Balls and the grit and the determination to say, I am going to fix this problem, and I am not taking no for an answer from my civil servants. There is okay, nobody in. in politics, nobody, at least in government. Maybe uh, it's unfair to the opposition because a lot of them haven't had the chance. But I'm not confident. There's definitely no one in government with the with the sheer testicular fortitude uh, or ovarian fortitude, if you're a feminist, go and <laughs> say, uh, go and say, I'm not taking no for an answer. This is getting fixed. If I've got to send people on planes to the US for treatment at whatever cost I'm fixing it.
1: But I I will say this, John, right, and and I might get a bit of heat for this, but it's something that I, you know, sorry, not sorry, I believe. Everything you've just said is right. However, there's another element to this, which is that we, or, you know, whoever we, the electorate of Ireland also need to grow up a bit about how and why we vote for people. So, a lot of people will talk about this, but then they'll punish the person who was, who did come out and and was more honest about things. Do you know what I mean? About how long things were going to take or, you know, who was people who were more dynamic or who were more, you know, willing to, to go out on a limb and challenge the consensus on certain things or be more honest about whatever. Like a good example of that is Dublin City Council. People will crib and moan about the hack at the city centre and how it's been destroyed by, you know, no turn here. And now they're going to vote, you know, say you won't be able to drive in at all and this, that and the other, whatever. But they'll vote for people who are completely, they don't think about who they vote for in local elections. Like the local authority, the councillors who are elected to Dublin City Council next this year, you know, there's a they're referred to as like the grandfathers of the city. These are the people who are going to vote. So think about that. When you go out and you vote, ask the person who knocks on your door, like be more aware and ask the person who knocks on your door what they think about the city centre, what's happening to the city centre, where, you know, should cars be allowed in, blah, 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 blah. Don't just go, oh, I'm going to vote for this person and protest, but never figure out what they're actually about. Yeah. And that goes to national politics as well. Like we have to be a bit more mature. Like you don't, you know, don't complain that the party that's in government isn't doing things about health when you voted for their local TD because they fixed the road.
0: Yeah. Well, look, I could I could talk all night about the voters because honest to God, you know, Winston Churchill was right about democracy. It's the you know, I, I was the most read story in the Irish Times the other day. Uh, at least for part of the day was about Taylor Swift and specifically a necklace that Taylor Swift was wearing at the Super Bowl, which had the number eighty seven really on it. Yeah,
1: I, I don't, I didn't really get this at all. Am I? Um, I don't really get it. <laughs> like so, Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift is going out with someone who's playing for a team. Is that Travis right? Kelsey? I'll explain I it to you. She was wearing a necklace
0: think. with the number 87 on because that's the number Travis Kelsey wears with the Kansas City Chiefs who are the finest NFL team of their generation led by quarterback Patrick Mahomes and head coach Andy Reid and won a really thrilling Super Bowl last Sunday night. Uh, but we're not a sports oh, podcast. Patrick
1: Mahomes married to someone called Brittany Mahomes?
0: Yes. Oh
1: my God, I did know something. Yes. Um, so... Taylor Swift is going out with one of the players. So, so why is that? In, what's that? So what? What? what's that? Going well, to?
0: because Taylor Swift is the biggest star in the world, those of us who are sports fans had to put up with basically everything that happened on the field. There was then a reaction shot of Taylor Swift in the stands reacting to it. So it wasn't possible to simply see, you know, the previous play. Um, We also ha- had to wait to see what Taylor Swift thought about it in the stands to see w- whether we should think it was good or bad. So horrible. She was cheering, obviously it was very good. Yeah, I know it's not her fault. I'm not blaming Taylor Swift. And work on kind of a tangent because what Had I was saying, yeah, what I was saying was that the most read story in the Irish Times for a period of time on I think Tuesday was you know, the secret behind Taylor Swift's necklace, which has the number eighty-seven on it, right? Um, okay. And I was thinking to myself, democracy is the tyranny of people who care about stories like that. Like you are, you know, the majority of people are more interested in Taylor Swift's necklace. they are in the kids with scoliosis that might be unfair to some of them but i think in as a generalization it's not wrong and yeah there's Hmm?
1: there's a wonderful episode of the simpsons where they want to build this monorail do you remember Mm -hmm. this one and there's some clear problem in springfield where they need money they want they have a surface or there's money or whatever and uh, there's a clear problem that needs to be fixed. And, you know, they're all set on that. And then this like flashy guy comes in and starts convincing them all to build this monorail. And by the end, because he's got a few gimmicks and a few things, they're all chanting monorail. And, and it's kind of absurd. But it, I think about that, you know, I am I know I'm not alone because I've, I've spoken to other people. But there's a lot of people who have kind of random episodes in The Simpsons pop into their head about different things. And the monorail thing comes into my head about a number of things. Yes. And this is that kind of thing that it's like, you know, we'll all just like kind of get all het up with talking about X when the clear problems are Y and Z.
0: Yeah, there's a, it's, it's it's a structural problem with democracy. But unfortunately, my my calls to have myself anointed as the elected and absolute monarch are as of yet gone unheeded. Maybe someday. Well, I
1: and, mean, no, and by the way, there's been a number of times, in fairness, in the last few weeks that I've been deeply suspicious that there was some kind of far right coup because the government have started to change all their policies on immigration to things that the far right were allegedly asking for about six months ago. So, you know, you never know. Maybe there was a coup. You're just not the leader.
0: Well, you know, there's really a coup if they cancel children's hospital. Because <laughs> we do want to talk about that briefly before the end of the show. Because, and look, I am of the view one of the hardest things. This I,
1: I, I, I think, I think, I. I think that, like, I admire your, whatever, resolve or something, but I think it would take huge courage to say at this level of spend,
0: oh, we're going to cancel this. Yeah, but it's sunk cost fallacies here. You know, and it's this (laughs) sunk cost fallacy kills you in business and kills you in politics and kills you in the country. The idea that we must finish this, whatever the cost, because we've already spent two billion quid on it. I just disagree because we're you know, for the 2 billion we've spent so far that's gone it is gone we're not getting it back whatever happens it is gone this week we made an active choice to spend another half billion throw another half billion onto the bonfire as well in the hope that it will I mean we were told this thing would be ready in 2020 Uh, it's now going to be at least 2025. And I think before 2020, there was talk of being done in 2016. We talked about this on a previous episode. No, we
1: had this conversation on the podcast before where we realised that it was actually first proposed in the year where we were children. Yes. And now on the current trajectory, it's it's, it's possible that my first, but maybe more than my first child, will never, will outgrow it. Yeah, it is extraordinary. And and I mean,
0: if, you know, if you take that $500 million that we're throwing into the Children's Hospital today and just use it to fund treatment for children who are actually sick today, I think that is a better use of money. We had the bizarre sight this week of the Minister for Health going on. This is one of my favorite stories of the week. The Minister for Health went on the news at 1 North Yee and said, this is not the most expensive hospital in the world.
1: Oh my God, yeah, I love this. Go on, go on, go on.
0: And it absolutely is the most expensive hospital in the world. If you go onto, I mean, there's a Wikipedia list of the most expensive buildings ever created. The Irish National Children's Hospital is by some distance the highest ranking hospital on the list. It is the most expensive hospital, not only the most expensive hospital in the world, it is the most expensive single healthcare facility built by any human being in the entirety of human history since we first stood up and walked out of the pond. It is the most expensive healthcare facility in the history of humanity being built in Ireland. So that's a claim to fame. That's the first thing. Yeah. But,
1: but, then, tal- but yeah, yeah,
0: go on. So we challenged the Minister for Health on this. So he sent his office an email and said, hang on a moment, everyone can see that you're telling fibs this is the most expensive hospital in the world. So what was his explanation? His explanation, <laughs> not his, but his press office, <laughs> is that it is not exp- as expensive as it looks because most hospitals only last 30 to 40 years whereas our children's hospital will last 80 years. So we're getting twice the bang for the buck. The buck. Now, this was on the That's fly. That's actually
1: so funny, though. It's so funny. Like, think about the gymnastics that had to be do- done to come up with that. Like, I, do you think that the person who came up with that is laughing? I mean, it's like me saying, you're the biggest asshole in the world. And you said, well, I'm not as big of an asshole as this person because, actually, I'm, I've am i only been alive for 40 for. 39 and a half years and he's been alive for 51 years so that's more asshole years than me so he's technically a bigger asshole than me like what are you talking about it's it, what? it's it, we're, the this, the, the, uh, the question is cost to build cost to build yeah it's whether or not it's the most expensive thing that was built or not nothing to do with how it lasts does but, but, it become does it become the least does the other one become more expensive if it if it, if it gets washed away by a flood
0: but the, well, oh, this is it. But the other thing is, like, the reason that hospitals have a useful life expectancy of 40 to 50 years um, is nothing to do with how long the building lasts. Or cost. Uh, but uh, Do you want to know why that is? Because I actually, I, I went and looked into this.
1: The hmm. reason
0: that hospitals are given a 40 to 50 year usable lifespan is medical equipment. Because medical equipment keeps advancing. In scale and ability and capability. So, if you have a room in your hospital that holds a modern, um what do you call those brain scanners? Um,
1: MRI.
0: MRI scanner. Uh, chances are, in forty to fifty years, that machine will either be much much smaller or much much bigger and capable of much more stuff, and it's not going to fit in that room anymore.
1: Got nothing to do with anything. Like this.
0: Like it does actually. No, seriously, it, it, it does. This is why hospitals have a usable lifespan of 40 50 years because after that, you you're better off knocking them down and rebuilding them to reconfigure them for the equipment of the age, basically. So when we say our children have to in the last eight years, that's nonsense, unless they're building rooms that will accommodate equipment that hasn't been invented and won't be for four decades. So there's an issue there.
1: But, is but is it's like... The chances that the MRI machine is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, like, mm-hmm. is kind of absurd for starters. But second of all, like St. Vincent's Hospital isn't forty years old. You know, Temple Street Hospital isn't forty years old. So
0: no, you're right there too.
1: Like these hospitals, I'm actually um, looking it up here. St. Vincent's Hospital opened when, like, so anyway, we're we're getting, we're. It opened in 1834. didn't it. Um, so, like, it's it's not really, it, it's it's introducing a new criteria to the conversation that's not relevant. The relevant question is the cost of the build. Like, if, if I say to you, which is more expensive to build, the Empire State Building or another building, it's not whether or not, do you know what I mean? It's not whether how long it's expected to last. It's the cost of the build. It's this complete criteria in and of itself.
0: Nobody says that about private houses either. If if you said to me, John, how much did you, you spend on your house? And I said it was, for argument's sake, four hundred grand. And but then I said to you, But it's grand, we'll be living in it for the next sixty years. That wouldn't make you think, oh well, that's that's more or less than you would have spent if you were going to live in it for 30 years. A house costs, so well, a house costs. The the same is true of a hospital. Yeah. So 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 but but anyway, this was the line that we are all expected to swallow that it's not the most expensive hospital in the country, in the world, because it's going to last for 80 years. So that's where we're at. Some portion of people will buy it, and some people' portion will use that. No, someday. they won't.
1: Nobody will buy that. Just they just hope that barely anyone's listening. <laughs> that's the only thing I can think of because that's the that's that's the stupidest thing I've heard in a while. Well, it's on the record. We, but on, on the day well we helps. throw in five, on the day we throw in five hundred million more of taxpayers' money onto a, a you know a sunk cost, as you say, that we're going to say that it's okay because. It's not technically that expensive because it's going to last longer. Yeah. The best bit is,
0: I think that between, because obviously the new National Children's Hospital is going to be an amalgamation of the two other ones, Temple Street and Crumlin, I think.
1: Yeah, Am I, right? I think so, yeah.
0: And I think the total cost for, for what we're going to spend, which is about two and a half billion, I think we're getting a grand total of two extra beds. So not only are we building the most um, expensive hospital in the history of the world, we're also going to accumulate the two most expensive hospital beds in the history of mankind.
1: Sorry, how, is, how are you working that
0: out? Because we're getting two more beds than we have now and spending two and a half billion for the privilege.
1: How is that? Sorry, what?
0: When we're <laughs> So we have two hospitals at the moment, sir. There are two children's hospitals. Okay, so when they're
1: closed people. down and replaced by this, the only difference is two beds. I mean, I obviously, it's not. It's not
0: just about the beds. No, but... it's not. It's not. It's not. But one would hope if you're spending two and a half billion, given that the population has expanded, and the expanding population was one of the reasons for building a new children's hospital.
1: Would yes, John. One would.
0: One would have hoped we were getting a few more. One decisions.
1: would hope. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But we're not. So that's where we're at. That's how the country is being governed, and hope that they're giving the scol- let's, let's
1: give their their. That's how they're given to scoliosis.
0: Well, that was the week that really was, folks, um, for another week. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Sarah and I, I think, annoyed ourselves over the course of the You just like it blew
1: me into a rage right at the end of the podcast.
0: <laughs> Hold that thought until next week. Um, anyway, as ever, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we really enjoyed, and we, it, it's we do this because we really enjoy the fact that so many of you listen and take value from the podcast. The number of people, Sarah, who come up to me and say, that they listen to us because it gives them reassurance that they're not the only people in the country thinking the stuff that we think uh, is really incredible. Um, And that's why we do this, because if you're out there and this is all driving insane, you are not alone. There are at least two of us here who agree with you. Um, So (laughs) on that note, on that happy note, we'll say goodbye and we will see you next week uh, for another edition of The Week That Really Was. From Sarah and from me, have a great weekend.